just let those those frog calls wash over are you, everyone. Are you are you getting some like? Yeah, there's interference in it. Yeah. Okay. Good. Because I was wondering if that was my phone. No, but I was it's, like, sure, no. it's on flight mode. No, yeah. I I I, I double checked on Have my side. Have frogs started doing that now? Where they sort of make the. <laughs> only only the ones that have little fillings uh, they, they can pick up other, other radio transmissions and ah, stuff yeah. The, old, yeah. the tinfoil hat of frogs cool so um, I like the sound of that frog it's very guttural yeah you got any guess who would what it could be um, I think that a noise like that that kind of guttural roar comes from uh, quite a large beast um, hmm I'm imagining it to have, you know, when the throat really extends, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. when you see a frog and it's like, it doubles its size you see it during puff its calling. Up and then, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The sound comes out like, so yeah, I'm going to say it's like some kind of very large frog. Large with frog. <laughs> possibly a toad. Oh. But no, I'm going to say frog, but with a big, big ball of a neck that, puffs out how close and i think it's from the congo oh the congo well every everybody remembers tom's answer and uh i'll reveal the identity of this mysterious frog a little later in the episode (laughs) by a little later i mean a lot later okay cool all right so what is this this is episode 103 yeah yeah mate we're well into the hundreds now yeah Introduced with that wonderful mystery frog, and uh, just to just to keep people every everybody on their toes, we have an episode that has nothing to do with frogs whatsoever. Uh, we have an episode entirely. Well, yeah, salamanders are kind of like they're close to frogs, and if you squint at a tortoise, maybe you could mistake it for a frog if it was hiding under a leaf or something. Not these tortoises, not unless it was that old ancient. What was it called? The bufo. Beelzebub thing. <laughs> you know the one I'm talking about? The giant... The giant Beelzebub toad. Beezle Bufo. Ah, Beezle Bufo, huh? Or, a, or is it Beelze Bufo? was a massive prehistoric frog. Yeah. It looks like a giant Pac-Man frog, or so they say. But yeah. Ah, uh, yeah. But crushed dinosaur eggs one. with its mighty jaws. But yeah, I think your point remains. You're not really going to get a tortoise mixed up with a frog. And yeah, we've got two papers. The reason they're linked is because they're both about gigantic animals that move uh, that move i yeah, mean not so, that that's a real distinction for animals unless you're talking about coral but yeah movement yeah. papers the movements of giants the movements of giants so the first paper we're going to talk about is by pike blake cabrera gordon and schwartzkopf and it was published this year 2022 body size sex and high philopatry influenced use of agricultural land by galapagos giant tortoises published in oryx so we're talking about Galapagos tortoises. Galapagos is a series of islands off the west coast of Ecuador in South America. And it's extremely famous. Um, You know, Darwin was big into the Galapagos Island. There's been loads of uh, documentaries about it. And it's famous in part because of these gigantic tortoises that live on the islands. And it's come, I mean, come on, it's come up in the podcast numerous times because a chat of like marine iguanas and all sorts of wonderful little critters like that. That's true, yeah, that's true. They've also got the marine iguanas. And um, yeah, it's kind of famous for... People always say that the animals of the Galapagos are kind of tame because they didn't have any human interference for so long. So they're sort of innocent wildlife. Naive. Naive, yeah. Um, 
And so, yeah, we're on the island of Santa Cruz, which is quite central in the Galapagos Islands. It's a small island, only around 40 kilometers across. And Santa Cruz is host to two different species of giant tortoise. The eastern one, which is uh, Chelonoidus porteri, known as the Santa Cruz giant tortoise. And then the western, which is uh, Chelonoides don Faustoi, known as Don Fausti's giant tortoise. Um, <laughs> what, a, what a descriptive name. <laughs> Yeah, I did look it up. Don Fausti was some big dog in um, tortoise conservation and is actually credited ah. with the survival of this species and others. So I was like kind of loathe to ridicule the name. Um, it's named after a person, but that person was pretty legendary and, you know, may actually be responsible for the continuing existence of the species, which, you know, kudos. That is mm-hmm. really uh, what a legacy. Um, so a giant uh, legacy, a, gi- <laughs> a giant <laughs> A giant shelled legacy. Uh, So Don Faustio is the larger of the two species. They grow up to 120 centimetres long, which is whopping for Americans. That's four feet. Um, While the Santa Cruz, I don't know why I'm, get get with the times, all right? Metrics in. Um, Feet is not an SI unit. (laughs) Never shall be discussed. There's a Hungarian uh, guy called Balin who works with us. We've actually covered some of his papers on the podcast. And um, I said something to him in feet the other day and he was livid. He was like, what do you mean feet? Like, where do you think we are? We're in Europe. I was like, oh, yeah, okay, sorry. Yeah, Uh, it's 1.3 meters. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I know. We're in a a weird situation where we just... use stupid measurements for all sorts of things and it makes no consistent sense. I know, yeah, it's it's really, really dumb. but yeah, so Don Faustio is the larger, um, while the Santa Cruz giant tortoise maxes out around a metre long. So still a big tortoise, but not quite as big. Huge. Um, and both of them have very strongly domed shells, giving them quite a round appearance. So they're not flat, they're quite round. Like a, um, what do you call, <laughs> I was going to say semicircle, but they're three-dimensional. So a semicircle would be incorrect. Half what a- do you call a half sphere? I don't know. Semisphere? Demisphere? It must be a semisphere. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Well done for remembering we exist in three dimensions, though. Uh, so the generic name uh, Chelonoidus, it actually comes from the Greek word chelone, which means tortoise. So that's easy to remember. Uh, and we already talked about Don Faustoi. I actually didn't look up the uh, meaning of the Santa Cruz one. Uh, oh, Porteri honors Captain Captain David Porter of the U.S. Navy, who made important observations. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, these tortoises eat herbs, grasses. They eat, like shrubs. They like cactus, flowers, berries, uh, fruits, and lichens. So they're having a very balanced diet. I think we could all take a little uh, leaf out of the old tortoises' a li- dietary a book. Yeah, yeah. With um, and in, with increasing frequency, they'll also eat non-native stuff. Um, and we'll talk about this a bit more as the paper progresses. But yeah, there's lots of different things that have been planted in this on this island, and the tortoises love it. They'll eat passion fruit, they'll eat blackberry, they'll eat guava. Um, they truly are connoisseurs of the fruits. Does, does sound like a nice sort of salad bowl of a diet. It does, especially sound. the berries. Yeah, the blackberries. Mm. I mean, you can really empathise with that. Um, and they will also occasionally eat carrion, which is, you know, the dirty secret of all tortoises. <laughs> That's not really that much of a secret. I think most people still don't realise that tortoises will literally eat you if you die. Yeah. Well, here it is then. A warning. <laughs> don't lie down and play dead in front of a tortoise because... No, it's fine to play dead. Just don't actually be dead. Well, I'm, I'm just I'm saying they it, might not wait. 
Yeah, I don't know. I think they'll... Yeah, maybe they won't. Maybe they won't. I mean, they'd nibble off a tortoise. To be fair, a nibble off a giant tortoise could be quite Unpleasant. serious. Yeah. Um, so Santa Cruz, this island, if you imagine the island, it's not completely round, but it's relatively round. And around the edges is this dry sort of coastal area. And then in the center where there's higher altitude, it's much cooler and wetter. And what the tortoises tend to do is that in the dry seasons, they migrate to this cooler, wetter region in the center because it's got better foraging. It's where all the plants are when the outside dries out. Water and sources too. Like fresh water sources, big, big deal that will pop up later. Yes. And so, yeah, so the center's got these water sources and the wetter vegetation. So when it gets dry, that's where they go. They all migrate to the center. Now, the ranges of these tortoises don't overlap. Um, the uh, Santa Cruz tortoise is found in the east. And the uh, Don Faustes is found in the west and they actually don't overlap. So they both have very small restricted ranges in this island, but they both do the same thing where they spend the sort of wetter months on the peripheries and then migrate to where the vegetation is when it gets a bit drier and there's still moisture up there. The trouble is that human beings have also recognised that this wetter centre to the island is extremely productive and it's where they've put their farms. So 88% of this nice, humid um higher altitude area has actually been turned over for agriculture so people are growing crops you know fruits and vegetables and they're also farming a lot of cattle it's about a 50 50 split with a bit of tourism thrown in there as well so you have this situation where the ranges of the tortoises have been altered dramatically and you know that's coincided with massive population declines i think both species have lost over 90 percent of their numbers in the last 200 years uh so you know they're both critically endangered and yeah so Obviously, the tortoises are trying to live in this heavily modified landscape. The farmers are also trying to make a living and the tortoises can sometimes be a bit of a pain for that. Um, well, that's I the think- trick, isn't it? You've got, you've got this perfect setup of, well, I suppose three species, four if you're including the cattle, requiring this very restricted, seasonally important area on a tiny little island. Uh, the chances are they're going to be tripping over each other at some point and... Uh, you're going to have to come up with some way to help mitigate any conflict there. Yeah. And, and I think that's... Know, keep these tortoises safe at the end of the day. That's that's kind of the reason behind this paper is to understand how they're using these farms and then use that information to kind of better inform either, either policies for the landowners or educational stuff or just, yeah, yeah, just have an idea of how the tortoises are using the farm so they can understand what, what they want, what they need. There's... Apparently, sometimes the farmers, if their tortoises are sort of coming along and eating their crops, they'll harass them. I don't know what that means. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, this <laughs> I, I don't know what that means either. But I could imagine trying to move a tortoise along because it's eating your eating your veg. Um, I don't know how keen tortoises are to move on. <laughs> they strike me as stubborn creatures. I feel and like a meat you... long tortoise is going to be so heavy. Yeah, <laughs> if it doesn't want to go anywhere, what are you going to do? <laughs> well, I just was trying to imagine like harassing it. What are they doing? Like spraying it with a hose? I feel like it could like that. <laughs> Hitting it with just stick, hosing maybe. Them down. Yeah, like just they like love it. Gah, yeah, gah, get an extra gah. bit of fresh water. <laughs> cool get out of here. Yeah, and I mean you can't push them. They're massive, and uh, yeah, if they get spooked, they can just hide. Like they could just go go inside so yeah well, that, it that's, must... it's probably why they use the term harassment as it yeah. captures a lot of different things potentially none of them 
really having that meaningful impact on the tortoises (laughs) yeah no and so yeah the tortoises are getting sort of mildly harassed there's also some suggestion that the tortoises carry diseases which may be transmissible to the cows um they were certainly carrying some strains of bacteria that were resistant to antibiotics i think there's a paper about that so there's like some suggestion that they could be yeah that was interesting that was yeah i don't know how that's come about I would have imagined it actually went the other way around. Mm, yeah. Because I, well, I don't know. Intriguing, intriguing. Haven't haven't read the paper that had details on that, but... No, I just saw not something I'd it. heard about before. No. Um, but yeah, so should we talk a bit about what these tortoises got up to? Yeah, they had a whole, whole heap of them, didn't they? They had 27 uh, porteri and, and 18 Don Faust... How, how are we going with with Don Don Faustoy? Yep. Um, little GPS. Well, I suppose they could have actually been quite large GPS trackers on a tortoise of this size. But point is, they had GPS trackers on them. Tracked them for an insane amount of time. Um, a mean of one thousand three hundred days per tortoise. That's crazy. Which, that might be the longest I've ever seen on a paper like this. Oh, for for herpetofauna, easy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've never I've never seen numbers this high. It's incredible data set. Um what is that? That's about four and a bit years, four and a half years? Something one thousand two hundred, was it? Yeah. One thousand three hundred and thirteen. Oh yeah, 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 definitely. What's yeah, the mean? Four years. Yeah, so the deal was just sort of find out where these tortoises are actually going and how long they're spending in these agricultural areas, whether they're sort of concentrating to certain certain zones and like trying to get a, a better handle on how much of an impact they're actually having on this farmland. So yeah, this this idea of working out tortoise impact, essentially, um, with the ideas of maybe, maybe it will offer some insights. Um, so what did, what, did we just dive straight into the sort of results? Because these yeah. guys, I mean, one thing is tortoises move quite a lot per day. So they, they were do, finding they are. They're motoring half around. a kilometre a day is the sort of movements they were doing. What, what do we got? I feel like the area descriptions aren't super useful. Yeah. For, for what they're doing, what we really care about is how concentrated their movements were to particular farms and things. Mm. So when you looked at... They basically split these they all this all this incredible tor- uh, tortoise movement data into uh, when they were bumming around outside the farms and then when they made these agricultural visits, as they call them. And when they did make these visits, they tended to hit only a couple of farms, but some you know some individuals hit a lot more uh, farms. Yeah, but you're right. It tended to be that they would like, visit a few farms, and um, the tortoises actually had a strong affinity for the same areas across multiple years so if they went to a couple of farms one year they'd go to the same couple of farms another year and that's really cool because it kind of starts to build up this picture that these tortoises yeah okay they're migrating into the highlands because it's drier on the exterior of the island they're looking for food and so they're revisiting the same locations where they know there to be good food resources and similarly there's probably as you said back in the day before humans heavily colonized the island if the tortoises wanted to have a drink, they'd have to find like a naturally occurring ephemeral water body that's just full of rain. But yep. now um, the cattle ranchers are digging ponds for their cattle. And um, apparently there's people digging ponds near tourist places to encourage the tortoises to come and have a sit. 
And they sometimes sit in the water for like a day or two. They love it. Just have a little, have a little spa day, tortoise spa day in the farmland. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, they they have this. They seem to have, and I mean, there's some studies on the cognition of tortoises. They're you know they're not they're not fools, and they can seemingly remember all of these places where they found good grub in previous years. And yeah, they'll go back to them. And I think the males spent more time in farmland than the females. Yep. Uh, this they think. It wasn't because they stayed longer once they were there. They came earlier. So they arrived before the females and they think that's because the males are bigger, heavier bodies. They need foods earlier in the year than the females. And so they migrate to the nice farm food hotspots earlier in the year. The females stay around a little bit longer in the periphery of the island because they have to make their nests and that's where they dig their nests. So the females Mm -hmm. are arriving to the farmland that little bit later. But it Um, wasn't entirely down to mass because there was a an effect for males uh, arriving earlier compared to like there was an overall trend of like larger males tended to spend longer in farmland and larger females tended to spend longer in farmland in addition to that just difference between male and females as well right on yeah so it's not just males were bigger and therefore did it it was it was both (laughs) yeah okay cool yeah so size and sex thing yeah yeah um yeah, they, they did also suggest that maybe tortoises are staying longer than they absolutely need to. Like, they they really, they seem to sort of, once they get to the farms, it's quite productive there. There's a lot of juicy vegetables and fruit. And there's also this herby forage that they plant for cows. There's also grass, which the cows are foraging on. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they're, they're kind of staying longer in the highlands than they would need to to fulfill their energetic costs. It seems like it could be something of a sort of, not a land of plenty, but there's some. There's certainly some opportunities up there that the tortoises are enjoying exploiting. Yeah, and they're remembering it too. They're like it's this high site fidelity. They're coming back to the same places, using the same sort of farms, but it doesn't seem so. It's a sort of land of plenty, yes, but it's not like they're coming in and rampaging through the joint. So the 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 usage of an individual farm. It looked like tortoises were using less than ten percent of the the farm area, and really, what they what they called like intensively used areas where they're actually foraging or or resting for periods of time were less than one percent of an individual farm. So you've got these mm. tortoises coming back to the same two or three farms, but when they actually get there, they're not using the whole farm area. They're using sort of smaller smaller areas but just sort of more intensively which does tally up with maybe those are the areas around double water bodies or particular high resource areas but it doesn't seem like they're they're swarming you know it's not this army of tortoises coming up the hills to the highlands and swarming over the (laughs) swarming over the farm and consuming everything no it seems quite targeted i think apart from one individual that went to like 24 farms like an absolute maniac Um, but that was that did seem to be a little bit of an outlier or a lot of bit of an outlier Mm. yeah so i think um yeah outcomes from this hopefully it's gonna sort of encourage some discussion i mean i liked a lot of the stuff in this paper seemed to actually be geared towards the farmers themselves um like this is kind of what the tortoises are doing and they didn't have crazily fine scale 
data on what was actually on the land. So you could actually take right. this a step further and look at like what particular crops, because all they had really was f- f- agricultural land or not, yep. where, yep. you know, and people have seen tortoises eating fruit trees. People have seen tortoises eating vegetable stuff. People have also seen them grazing on grass. So it's not really clear from this exactly the resources that they're going to use. Um, but what is cool to see is that despite the fact that there's all these farms, the tortoises still manage to traverse the landscape. They're not really getting stuck in fences. They said that yeah. in this whole study, only one tortoise seemed to get stuck um, in a farm because of the fence. Right. So, so that's that, was, quite that was a fear they could get in and they were spending such a long time in the farms because they couldn't get back out. But that yeah. thankfully doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah. Yeah, to be honest, I think for me, it's kind of gratifying to read that the tortoises are willing to use this kind of environment. Like they're Mm -hmm. not too shy of people that they're not willing to go there because if they were, then I think both of these species would probably be headed for extinction, given the fact that there's like only just over 10% of the natural highland remaining. Yeah. Um, So I hope that, you know, work like this. And obviously they're a big tourist draw, which is always a massive boon for species. If you can bring in tourist dollars, then you're kind of worth your weight. Um, you know, so hopefully, yeah, they'll continue to persist and uh, studies like this will kind of give the farmers an idea of sort of what needs to be done to allow the tortoises to coexist and yeah, hopefully not compete with with their interests too much. Yeah, no, I think think everything in this paper is very encouraging for continued coexistence. You've got a a animal that's very much capable of remembering where good resources are. So if you were to set up like a little side area of good water source some good you know id what the tortoises are coming for in terms of uh, food resources and sort of make a little okay this is tortoise zone over here it's one less than one percent of your actual farmland make Mm. it accessible to tortoises keep them happy you've then got the rest of your farmland that that can carry on as as without concern of tortoises so you it feels like there is scope here to provide what the tortoises need without impacting anybody's anybody else's mm-hmm. <laughs> space, and, time, uh, effort, cost, the whole thing. The farmers won't have to waste their energy trying to harass them either. Yeah, right, exactly. It, 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 see, it seems like it's setting the scene for some nice coexistence and some supplementary tortoise feeding uh, and happy tortoises. So for some from tortoise waterholes to highland streams in China, let's get onto paper DOS. This one's by Zhang, Zhao, Willard, Wang, Zhang, Zhang, and Cuba, 2019. Spatial distribution and seasonal movement patterns of reintroduced Chinese giant salamanders, published in BMC Zoology. Now you said you said streams. What what would you say the width of a, a large stream would be? I'm about to be corrected. Uh, I think a large stream to still be called a stream and not a river. Um. I'm saying, oh, yeah, probably not much more than like five meters. Then it would just probably become maybe 10 meters. As a, mm, I think once you hit 10 meters, you're in a river town. Okay. Okay. So we got, we, we got a, we got a river and a stream then by, by your, by your cutoffs. Okay. Uh, we've got one of them that's nine meters wide and the other was 15 meters wide where they, where they released these salamanders that we're about to talk about. Great. So. All the giant salamanders come from one family, Cryptobranchidae, 
And that includes the Hellbender from the USA. They're all related, which, I mean, seems kind of obvious being as they're giant salamanders, but I didn't realise that they are all interrelated. And, well, at least not to this extent that they're in the same family. Uh, and so the Japanese giant salamander, you've got the Chinese giant salamander, and like I said, the Hellbender from the USA. Um, the Chinese giant salamander is Andreas Davidianus, which is another critically endangered species. Their ecology is really mysterious. Um, apparently it's really hard in China to get permits to study wild animals. So there's not really any studies where they've got wild ones and tracked them. But what they can do instead... <laughs> Just, it's really hard. Permits, wild animals. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's a pretty well, difficult honest, starting point to work from. <laughs> yeah, it is. And, and to be honest, I would I would describe it as very hard in the UK as well. I haven't right. done it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I could massively empathise when I read that. But um, So what they've done instead is... Um, well, let's talk a little bit about these freaky salamanders first, actually. So they can't really see very well. They're massive, right? They grow to 1.8 metres long. 1.8 metres of salamander. Pure... Have you ever salamander pure salamander have you ever seen one in real life in the flesh have i ever seen one i i don't think i've seen any of the giant salamanders no i saw one i went to a zoo in china when i was there which probably one of the most deeply regrettable decisions of my life but one thing i saw there which didn't completely depress me was a chinese giant salamander and it was huge mate <laughs> it was huge and i mean this one was not 1.8 meters this one was probably like a, just over a meter maybe like 1.2 but it was a serious you just think what is that doing existing now it just looks like <laughs> they, something they do look prehistoric they they, absolutely they're mental do. um so what do they do they eat worms crustaceans insect larvae and small vertebrates such as fish and frogs they kind of mooch around on the bottom of these rocky streams like i said they can't really see but they have these sensory nodes all over their body so they can detect vibration really well. So they're kind of, I imagine them to be kind of ambush predators, really. I think they just sort of sit about mooching around and then when something comes <laughs> near and they sense it with their nodes, they just suck it down. Well, maybe. Um, mm. We'll talk about whether they're moving around or not in a second. Yeah. Um, the other cool thing they can do is that they can breathe through their skin. So... That's one of the reasons they're so wrinkly is because it increases the surface area for oxygen absorption. But as we said, they were unable to just grab and track some wild ones. Um, well, this is a completely different approach. So what they did, the Chinese giant salamander, apparently one of its downfalls is its deliciousness to humans. So it's actually a delicacy in China. Lots of that people doesn't necessarily them. mean it's actually delicious. Not necessarily, mm. no. But, you know, I think deliciousness is in the eye of the... Or on the taste buds of the taster, isn't it? It is. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're basically, regardless of how you feel about it, people like eating them. And obviously, you don't want people to be taking them out of the wild because they're critically endangered. Thankfully, I guess you could say, depending on your perspective, um, they are farmed in large numbers. So there are large salamander farms. And those farms provide salamanders to the food industry. And the authors of this paper went to a market or whatever and bought 31 of these juvenile giant salamanders that were destined to be food. And they re-released them in two stretches of river with radio transmitters in them in the hopes of learning about their ecology and seeing kind of what happens when you release animals as part of a conservation project because this is the kind of thing which many times doesn't actually take place they just go 
release the animals and hope for the best. So, right, you it, either get lack of follow through, lack of like uh, post release monitoring, which is a really big deal. You need to know if it's being effective and you know learn from learn from mistakes potentially. Exactly, and it's hard to know whether or not you've actually succeeded if you're not seeing what the animals do. So, right. yeah, they had thirty one Chinese giant salamanders, released them in two. And what were these? What were these rivers called? One was Hai uh, Hei and Dongge. Yes, yes. Hai Hei was the nine meter one. Donghei is the fifteen meter one, I believe. Right. Cool. 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 Um, and yeah, they went along and they tracked each of their salamanders every day, just once per day. Uh, and yeah, tried to build up an idea of what they were doing, whether they were staying in the same place, whether they were migrating from where they were released, etc., etc. Let's talk quickly about their survival. Uh, of the 31 that were released, 16 survived the year, which doesn't sound amazing. It's just over 50%. But I think that's actually pretty good if you're just dumping an animal in a completely new environment. It's come from captivity. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. So they picked ones that the founder and parent stock originated from these rivers. So they've done their diligence in terms of limiting the uh, sort of outbreeding risks. So you're, you're at least trying to get ones that were close to what are there naturally. Um, they're both rivers that have still just about have populations of them still existing. So that sort of confirms that they're suitable habitats for these these salamanders still. Yeah, it's tricky to know whether that's a good survival rate or not because you need to know what the natural survival rate of juvenile giant salamanders is to begin with, right? Yeah. For all we know, 50% is phenomenal for ones that age. Mm. I'm just thinking of sort of studies where people study translocated animals, which I guess is a sort of... Yeah, it's a sort of subset. It's sort of... Yeah, but it's not... You know, depending on the age of the animal, it's not a bad analogue. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And uh, to be fair, of the 15 that died, some of them died as a result of the surgery from the radio tracking. So, um, yeah, yeah, there's that, that they, had a, they had a breakdown. I think it was maybe three of them had issues with the... Uh, I think it was four, actually. Yeah. One, two, three. Yeah, so four had issues with the surgery. There were quite a few unknowns for what killed them. One, two, three. You know, four more unknowns. Um and then they had a couple that were one that they confirmed was killed by the flooding which i think is actually a really interesting aspect to this this study is that there were floods that washed a whole bunch of them down the river <laughs> yeah and some were never seen bad again bad luck yeah exactly the woo gone um so it's sort of difficult to know whether that flooding played into the um, into the mortality rates and s- almost certainly played into the we don't know what happened to them rates. Yeah. You know, radio radio tracking is already tricky enough when you've got an idea of where the animal roughly is going to be. Trying to track an animal that you don't really have that good a handle on its movement capacity, plus then half of them get sort of washed down a river. Like, it, it's, <laughs> it's not easy. Yeah. It is not I'm, easy. I mean, it's, yeah, totally different to what... You know, I mean, both of us have been in situations where we're tracking a snake and the snake's gone missing. And, you you know, you kind of look at the environment as a sort of grid and you think, right, <laughs> I'm going to try and check this as sort of strategically as I can. Um, but, you know, it's going to have moved 
I mean, I suppose there's kind of less, there's there's more directions it could move, but feasibly the distance it could move seems lower. Um, with a salamander getting washed downstream, it's like where do you stop at the sea? Like it could have gone miles. That's, well, this is the kicker. So one of the one of the rivers you had sort of every week they ended up between one and sort of six hundred meters up and down the river, depending on which way they went. The other river that had the sort of flooding issue, you had between one and six kilometers. These these animals could end up like the flooding really pushed some of them far down the river. I think six kilometers is about is the most extreme. Yeah, mm. it is the most extreme. Um, but that's a yeah. lot of area to cover to try and find your um, <laughs> find your salamanders. I mean, on average, obviously they're not doing the six kilometers. That was a that was a standout. Uh, well, yeah. Um, let, I think that leads yeah. into talking a little bit about like I think people are probably wondering. Okay, so yeah, you've got you need, you've got circumstances where they've moved really far over time, uh, or they've been washed away. But what were they doing on more of like a daily basis? Um, daily basis, they were pretty chill. Um, you know, you're talking about moving maybe 200, 250, 300 meters over the week up and down uh, an area of the river. Um, but sort of day to day movements tended to be quite small. Uh, 74% of the daily movements were less than 10 meters at one of the rivers and about 60 at the other. 60%, I mean. Um, they are capable of doing bigger, bigger moves. Uh, some of the bigger ones were close to a kilometer um, from one day to another. But really, a lot of the moves you're talking, you know, 20 meters or so, 10 meters or so, like quite small moves and not consistently moving every day, too. Um, maybe every every ten days they would sit still, or, or in the more extreme cases, every other day they would be remaining in the same place. So there's a, seems like there's a plenty of individual variability. Um, mm. But there were certainly days when these salamanders would just chill out, and if they had chilled out, they're not going anywhere. And if they were moving, not too big a deal. Um, yeah. Ob- obviously outliers, obviously big moves that come in every now and again with this sort of nearly a kilometre move and, and obviously the flooding. But by and large, it seemed like they were relatively sedentary, supporting mm. what you were saying with the potential sort of ambush yeah, hunting I'm wondering, way. I'm wondering now, actually, if they are really ambush predators or whether they mooch around looking under rocks and encounter stuff that way. I think it could be a bit both. Cause well, it's worth you- mentioning they were only tracked once a day. Yeah. So let's say you come in the morning and there's a salamander under a rock. You're like, yep, under a rock. You then go away and go track your other salamanders. It goes on its little mooching, foraging session and then returns to its favourite rock. You come back the next day. Oh, the salamander hasn't moved. It's lazy and it's sitting under a rock. So there is that aspect of the sampling regime potentially hiding some subtler little movements. But, you know... Who who knows? It's it, it's trickier without higher res data and tracking them more frequently. Mm. Um, Very true. What we can say of confidence is that they largely stayed pretty close to where they released, right? Which which is really good for their future conservation. They seem to find habitat they could use close to where they were released, and then they yep. stayed there, which yeah bodes really well because they weren't just like ah where am I? Time to travel in one direction forever until I die. They were just like okay, this is my home now. Um, I'm part of conservation, and this is important. Yeah, I, I, it was sort of remarkably stable. So they have these these plots that show weeks post release along the x-axis and distance from release site on the y 
and the sort of first 10 weeks there's a lot of up and down there's sort of salamanders moving back and forth and sort of it maybe settling down and then you've got this really extended period from like week 10 to week 50 where their distance from the release site remains really really stable like it's it's quite evident that they've found somewhere to settle down perhaps they've mm-hmm. found good good foraging sites good shelter sites and they're sort of settling down into what you could call a home range or something um interestingly there's quite a few peaks after sort of week 50 um where they go further upstream but i do believe they mentioned that there could be some seasonal changes that are leading to that um, yeah. plus they're also juveniles juveniles are a little bit weird when it comes to dispersal and sort of meet moving to new areas so yeah it yeah. could be with it could be that the juveniles kind of get an instinctual message into their brains at a certain time of year like okay it's time you've got to go and leave it's time to disperse because in most animals there's a period of dispersal where the 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 juveniles kind of make some effort to leave the area that their parents are in and this is obviously evolutionarily quite beneficial because it stops you breeding with your parents so much and it allows them to find new foraging grounds with potentially a little bit less competition so as you say with the juveniles it's likely that there will be a time when that kind of starts to kick in and they get this feeling that it's time to go um but they may have already been through that while in captivity and then now they've been released and they've would have found their adult feeding grounds by this age we just don't know could be adult feeding grounds could be uh finding new areas that are sort of better dispersed so they're not overlapping with each other as they both sort of you know come to a certain age it could be a competition for for areas as well and they you know move off to reduce that to mitigate that yeah. um i know it, it comes across as quite uh quite positive quite optimistic i would say i considering so, yeah. these these guys were from a you know entirely domestic uh Non, non-wild stock. It's not like they've been translocated from other wild locations. Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, so. I think of all the animals, the large, large salamanders, it's hard to be optimistic about. So yeah, any kind of glimmer of hope like this, like actually, yeah, if you reintroduce animals, not only do they survive in reasonable numbers, but they also don't just act really strangely, Is I think it's cause for some optimism. Um, yeah. Yeah, and either way, it's great to learn a little bit more about these weird, flabby salamanders. Um, yeah, little insight into the into the movements and how they sort of, yeah, high high sight fidelity, chilling at the same chilling at the same boulders a lot of the time. It's it's interesting. Should we move on to our species of the bye week? Yeah. Oh, Ben, is this the toad? Is this the toad? The sound we heard. Oh, he's he's worked it out. <laughs> so yeah, the the grand reveal that what you heard at the beginning of the episode was in fact our wonderful species of the bi week. So this is a new species of red toad. <laughs> Spoiler alert: uh, a from Central Angola, authored by Baptista Vaspinto, Keats, Edwards, Rodell, and Conradi. And yeah, published in 2001 in Zoo Taxa. So... Uh, 2021. When, yeah. You, didn't you say 2001? 
It's possible I said 2001. <laughs> I'm I think so- I said 2021. I'm sorry, dude. I'm, I heard 2001. If, if, if you did say what you I said, I mean, um, that I face apologize. was just like, why doesn't my mouth do what my brain tells it? But that's, yeah. So it was published in uh, sometime in the last 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it was published in 2021. So, yeah, we got a new species of red toad from Angola. Um, we're in a place called Malangi province. Uh, apparently, this species is endemic to central Angola. And, um, yeah, what does it What does it look? Uh, oh, it's from Miombo Woodlands, which I love as well. Really nice biotope. Um, well. Right. What, what does it look like? What's, about, what's notable? It's about uh, sort of six to eight centimetres long. Yeah. Mm, quite big then so pretty so it's a suitable size for a toad it's um, very red on top it's tomato red it's it's outrageously tomato red i mean red toad is spot on it it's a classic toad shape paler underbelly uh, it's got a sort of dark line that separates the very tomato red top talk to um, me about its glands uh they're not Overly obvious, actually. Um, Subtle glands. Yeah, they they almost sort of fade into the sort of general structure of the toad. It's got two dark spots on its back. Uh, Apart from that one that doesn't. (laughs) I'm not sure why one of them doesn't, but all the other three pictures do have these, like, two spots on its back, which could be pretending to be eyes, the way they're hollowed out. Mm. And they've called it Schismoderma branchy, uh, named after Bill Branch. Oh, I've been looking at the wrong one. <laughs> Maybe I've been looking at the wrong one. No, I've been looking at scar- s- sarans. Oh, Schismoderma, yeah. Oh, Karens? for goodness sake, that's also what the call was from. Oh, curses. <laughs> curses. I'm in disbelief. To be fair, my description of the look is they basically look the same. Other than the red goes a little bit lower down uh, this uh, branch eye new one and it's got more sort of black dots on the underbelly. Um, yeah. Now, what I'm what I'm really... Uh, I'm, I'm desperately looking for the... Uh, oh, yes, characteristic deep and loud whoop whoop. Yep. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm just looking for where I, I, I pulled the uh, call from a link provide you know the details provided in this this paper and clearly that's what it was being compared against as opposed to the call which is depicted in uh, figure whichever it is oh I can fix this it can be fixed we do just swap out that audio for this audio that's what you heard from the beginning here we go So that was Schismoderma care. Schismoderma <laughs> Karens that you played at the beginning, right? Yes. So now yes. we're listening to Schismoderma branchi. Right. Branchi. So they provide both the, the link to the, the one they compared it against, which is what it's been separated from. And as you can right hear, on. there is a, well, <laughs> to, to the naked ear, perhaps there's not much of a difference. <laughs> but, naked um, ear. <laughs> Without any of that 
ear bolstering equipment that we use. Yeah. So um, I do like there's some nice pictures in this paper of not only this extremely tomato red toad, but also there's a photo, there's a fo- there's a series of photos of them in a sort of brown muddy pool with some grass nearby it, loads of spawn which uh, is in long strings, much like our native toads, and then there's some kind of breeding aggregation in that one photo which looks just as ghastly as when the toads in the uk do it with one poor hapless female surrounded by a bunch of males mating her to the point where she drowns in some cases um so yeah looks pretty cool there's not a huge amount about their ecology or natural history here i mean they're toads that go to water to uh lay their eggs um quite a narrow range narrow range in angola in Angola, yeah. I suppose in the grand scheme of the entirety of Angola, yes. Yeah. But Angola's pretty yeah. big. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's because that other species, um, Karens, uh, is actually found much more widely across Africa. So Yeah, yeah. This one's relatively small range, but yeah. Really cool, nice red toad. Good find. Great that they actually published the sound. Kudos to the authors. Yeah, I just like, looking there was at a DI, DOI, bam, done, instant. Like, so can yeah. correct my my mistake of finding <laughs> and putting in the Karen sound and also describing the Karen's <laughs> red toad visually. <laughs> uh, <laughs> They're very similar, to be fair. Any other business? Uh, no other business. No. Zero other business. I've got some business. Okay. Okay, so apparently the Bell's Phase monitors that we were talking about last week, last episode, um they're not they're not like geographically restricted necessarily. Um Oh. It's, it's just a like, morph that occurs throughout the throughout the range? Throughout the distribution? Yeah. Apparently, yeah. Scott's saying it's not a geographical form at all. They're actually found in various parts of their range, um, but more so to the north of the range so yeah perhaps that was some bad ah, so no the separation paper. overlap but gotcha okay cool and he also said he has a jack russell cross pug that weighs eight kgs so um my sizing of dogs yeah so that's that's half of 15 pretty much right yeah mm-hmm. yeah because mm-hmm. i said 15 kgs for jack russell did i yeah yeah i think i think that's so wild. i don't know and where i, was, I, got I that. was saying five for a, a small jack russell fair i mean pugs are a small dog but they're about the same size as a jack russell so yeah i'll I feel allow like, it yeah yeah depends we depends to, on the mix we used to have a dog here that was um half chug which is chihuahua pug and the other half lasso apso she's <laughs> whenever incredibly she did something, powerful whenever we did something stupid or yeah occasionally if she was really out of breath you'd see a tiny bit of the pug breathing and we always used to say whenever she did something stupid we'd be like that's the chug in her <laughs> poor creech big up penny hey so um yeah that's oh the only other business i had was from richard southworth who got in touch so yeah thank you scott for clarifying that about the bells yes. monitor yes it's not brilliant. a um not necessarily a geographic thing so much as it's just everywhere but more common in the northern parts of their yep. range and yeah, Richard Southworth got in touch. Remember, I was asking, like, I was saying last week, last episode, that Ceratosaurus was a dinosaur that looked like that lizard we described from the last episode, oh, last week's yeah, species the, um, of the bi week, which was Acanthosaurus meridiana. That's a tricky. That yeah, crazy horned tricky. lizard. I was saying it looked like Ceratosaurus. Yes. But Richard Southworth has 
realized what I meant, which was I meant Carnotaurus, not Ceratosaurus. And Carnotaurus is like the bullhorn dinosaur from the Disney film Dinosaur that has two horns above its eyes and actually much more closely resembles the lizard we were talking about. Carnotaurus. Uh, oh, yep. Uh, oh, yep. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I also said... I said they were sauropods, which we realized was wrong. And then we talked about ornithischians, but actually they're theropods. Say the first word you said again. Sauropod. Oh. Yeah, fair play. So, yeah, thanks very much for these corrections, guys. Um, <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's good to have that cleared up because <laughs> I had no idea. Do you idea agree, way. though, that it looks a bit oh, like ab- Carnotaurus? No, absolutely. Spot on. Okay, like if, yeah. if, no, I'm... I'm no, that's ex- that's exactly that's exactly spot on, and uh, I'm glad that's that's been cleared up because I had completely forgotten about that conversation, even though it was like a week ago. <laughs> all right, cool. So yeah, I think that's really all that is all that we've got. Um, hopefully, everyone enjoyed that episode on the giant animals doing stuff, um, giant salamanders and giant tortoises. Two, well, three critically endangered species. Also. Um, We asked a while ago for people to give us some reviews online and we've had some really nice ones. So thank you very much if you've taken the time to do that. Um, We are in the leaderboards for nature podcasts these days, which is pretty cool. And if you would be so kind as to leave us a review, it would help us spread our herpetological message to more people. Um, Do you want to mention the experimenting with different episodes or should we just do it? Oh, well, now you've you've mentioned it. Now it's going to look, people are going to be wondering. So starting next week, we're going to start doing weekly episodes that are a bit shorter. Um, We've had some feedback. Ah, I won't say that. But yeah, we're going to try. We're going to try and just see if doing a shorter episode once a week works for us um, rather than a longer form every two weeks. Uh, You know, might make it a bit more digestible accessible so we're gonna give it a go so um if you have strong feelings about that idea let us know whether you think it's good or bad that'd be really useful it's always great to hear from actual listeners so yeah, yeah. awesome See so how it thank goes. you very much yeah yeah thanks for listening yeah we'll catch you next time and if you want to get in touch with us you can at all the usual places on social media or herp highlights at gmail.com cheers <laughs>